Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear and I'm your host. You know, we've been on the air for, I keep losing track, but it's been, good heavens, well over, I think, 14 years now. If you've been a regular listener, I really appreciate that. Um, and a lot of people wonder, how, how do I keep coming up with all these legal topics that uh, span the entire universe of things that are interested specifically with a focus on uh, defense, criminal defense and the criminal justice system. And, well, I'll tell you, I basically uh, keep an eye on the news. I, it's part of my job, anyway, as a defense lawyer to be uh, uh, up to date with all the different happenings that go on in the legal world. Um, it's part of being an active litigator is knowing what these issues are and how they are trending. And uh, over the course of the broadcast history of this show, there have been some very major changes in uh, the legal landscape and how things work. So I've been glad to be your host for that process. But uh, I just wanted to comment briefly, because earlier this week, uh, you know I've been talking about the Live Tour, and I, I know that doesn't seem to have much with to do with uh, criminal defense, but there are parallels, believe it or not. Um, the, the LIV or Live Tour, which is the Saudi Arabian sponsored golf alternative tour, has been uh, in, in much the controversial spotlight for the uh, past couple of months, mostly because it, it is in conflict with not only the rules of the PGA, but also the whole entire structure and format in which uh, that organization conducts its. Um, tournaments and we also have added layers on top of that if you're familiar with golf at all there's uh, the FedEx Cup uh, which keeps track of you know over the course of an entire season and uh, you know the designated number of events and who's in what place and there's money to be had as part of all that but there are also sub tours like the Corn Ferry Tour which is there for people to have an alternative way to get their tour, tour card if they don't uh, participate in an invitational or if they are not otherwise qualified to be uh, exempt from uh, being part of the qualification process, you know, we have these other kind of alternative tours, but they, they all work hand in hand with the PGA because the PGA basically um, sets the rules for all that kind of stuff. And, and none of the competition or none of the world rankings or none of the money rankings or anything make any sense if you've got this completely separate entity that doesn't work within those parameters. And the big controversy, of course, is that the Live Tour um, schedules events. By the way, they're 54-hole events, not 72-hole events, like a typical PGA or USGA um, event. So they're, they're not compatible as far as even the same format. But uh, they're in conflict with the schedule for, for the PGA. So it was just interesting earlier this week we had, um, I think it's the, thur the third actual official live event that occurred at Trump National at Bedminster, I believe. And um, I keep waiting to see, is there going to be any network that's going to cover this and actually show hole by hole, you know, round coverage? Uh, I haven't seen it yet. And apparently the only way you can... Currently, the only way you can watch any of this is by, I believe, if you just happen to get some YouTube coverage of it, 
But um, the reason I've been waiting to see what's going to happen with all this is because this was supposed to be a an enhanced spectator experience. And I don't know exactly how much it costs to go to one of these events, but I've heard that it's a, a very large sum of money, comparably speaking, with uh, other golf events in order to have the privilege of watching this live, or if it were to be televised ever anywhere, then <laughs> I guess there's, you know, advertising, sponsorship, all this stuff where it's supposed to generate all this money. Now, the, the problem with that particular model, even if it were to end up working out in some way, is that this is all being funded and sponsored by uh, very rich Saudi Arabians. And there's been a lot of talk, and I, I can't say I disagree with this necessarily, but, you know, Saudi Arabians were most of the people that were involved with the 9-11 World Trade Center terrorist attack. And I know you can't just say, hey, um, because they were Saudi Arabians, let's have a, a, you know, a bias against all of them, but... You know, on top of that, there been, this has been a country that is really an outlier when it comes to disrespect for basic human rights, and it's a form of government that is probably one of the most um, you know restrictive in in the world because of the things that are against the law there, as well as it's you know it's really just a extreme form of a controlled society. I don't know if you know this, but I will tell you, there, there's no alcohol allowed uh, in the country. It's a very, very serious offense if someone were to be found in possession of alcohol. Um, they have a lot of laws that we wouldn't consider to be um, modern or sophisticated, such as, you know, if a wife is found to have been unfaithful to her husband, then the husband has the right to behead her in public, chop her head off. They still do that. Um, so I question why uh, a lot of the people that are participating in this tour are U.S. citizens, and I know we don't like to restrict what U.S. citizens do normally, but it seems to me that there would be legitimate State Department and national security concerns uh, by having this participation be sponsored by um, a nation that has no respect whatsoever for basic human dignities. It seems rather bizarre to me. But it's still playing itself out, and as we continue to see ugh, you know, more and more of these big-name golfers switch over to the Live Tour because the money is so outrageous i mean it's kind of interesting how there's there's got to be a breaking point for some people uh, people like tiger woods say what you want about other problems in his life but you know he stood up as a man of integrity and said yeah the saudi saudis offered me a billion dollars and i said no so good for him he you know that would be <laughs> tempting to a lot of people but it also meant he and there are others that are holding firm remaining uh, in the PGA as long as they can, I suppose, and saying no to the money. And, you know, I think that says a lot. But the more people that 
you know, quote unquote, defect, and I don't think that's an improper word to use here, the more people that defect over to uh, this live tour, the you know, more insignificant the actual PGA tour becomes. And there could be a point where there is no PGA tour because of all this. And I know there are those that say, hey, you know, this is just money and people do things for a living and they make money and we as Americans have never said, you know, how much is too much because there's no such thing. You know, if you can reach for the maximum amount of wealth that you can possibly get your hands on, we don't really have a problem with that in our society. Um, you know, generally speaking, it's a every man for himself type type thing, right? So I get that, but this is also a, a fairly regulated and unique way of managing the game of golf and to have the integrity of the game of golf stay there. Now, you know, back in the 1920s, 1930s, there was um, a big trend where people that became skilled at golf would basically have these, I mean, I'm not kidding, it was like a circus sideshow where they did a bunch of tricks and they would take bets and, you know, hey, I bet, you know, I can hit three balls in three different directions with one strike. And people learned how to, you know, almost like a rodeo or something. And that was part of the reason why both the USGA and the PGA of America came into existence is to have some uh, norms in the game as to how it's played and if one is actually going to be a professional one who's earning a living uh, by playing golf there's standards that have to be out there and part of it is because the, the idea of golf was being significantly cheapened uh, by these you know circus shows that were going on so you see the parallel here you see how this is kind of what's going on right now you know, with the live tour big name famous people playing golf most of which not you know winning <laughs> tournaments by any means you know somebody was telling me the other day they looked on the leaderboard for one of these things and not a single name is anybody that you'd really know um, they're just people that, that took the money to go and play in these things so hey time for a break we'll be right back after these messages all right so enough about golf for today I will try not to Unless I get mad. If I get mad about something, I might come back to this whole thing. It, yeah, it really bothers me. Anyway, moving on. Uh, there was a report that I received earlier this week about uh, one of these organizations. I'll tell you a little bit about it. It's called the Marshall Project. And essentially, this is an organization that does a lot of data gathering. And they also do um, journalistic reporting on issues that matter as it relates to public policy and our criminal justice system. And, you know, its designated goal, I suppose, is to ensure that people are aware of their rights and to provide examples of how people's rights are not being respected. Situation, and it does focus quite a bit, you know, their reporting, their articles, their publications, and so forth, do focus on situations where there's been prosecutor prosecutorial misconduct, judicial misconduct, police misconduct, that kind of thing, and how it's contributed to wrongful convictions. And, you know, they've done a lot of very important work. And there's, you know, there's other organizations that have a similar, in a similar vein, that produce publications, they gather data, that kind of thing. Another one is, that I'm familiar with is called Reentry Central. 
and that's an organization that is designed to you know, help with the problem that most incarcerated people face when they are coming back into society and it's a resource um, gathering type organization for that particular issue but it's also fairly critical of the justice system in a lot of different ways so yeah you know the essence of american speech right speaking out against the government and saying hey just in case you didn't know this is going on you as citizens should be aware of this well uh the marshall project got uh, censored has been given a ban on the distribution of their publications to uh, prison people um, you know and they weren't charging any money they would send pamphlets newsletters you could subscribe to receive you know stuff mailed to you and you know prisoners all over the country would be able to receive it well somebody in the Department of Justice on the federal level and in several states I guess got together and they were going to crack down on whatever message they think is being sent here and they basically invoked the uh, right of censorship to uh, by correctional institutions for safety reasons or the in, in organizational integrity reasons whatever you want to call it and it's not like they were being articles sent to prisoners like how to break out of prison or anything like that. <laughs> it's more like, hey, these are trends going on. We've seen a, a rise over the past uh, several months in drug enforcement in certain parts of the country. You know, why is that type thing? You know, more policy type things, discussions about the law, trends in the law. And there are people, and I hope you're aware of this or you should be aware of this, that you know, earn their high school degrees, college degrees, and sometimes even professional degrees while they're incarcerated. And being informed and doing research and doing uh, being familiar with studies and things that are relevant to one's career path um, has never really been stifled. We encourage people that are part of that correction system to uh, better themselves and within an effort so that when they are released back into society they'll they'll be a positive contributing member to society rather than a problem that we have to continue paying for or finding ways for taxpayer dollars to support people i mean we should all agree that's a good thing you know when someone's done their time served their time they they've you know served their sentence now we have to look at how we reintegrate somebody back into into our society in a positive way um now you know if you listen to my show with any regularity that i have very strong beliefs on the fact that we're not doing enough to make that actually happen in the right way that there tends to be a mentality that when someone's convicted of something no matter what it is and then there's a sentence where they end up getting hauled off to prison which again we all pay for uh that then you kind of forget about it, you know, move on to the next case. The only people that really deal with the ongoing issues are victims of a crime or family members of an incarcerated person that continue to deal with, you know, the fallout of whatever the person's done. And I've seen it across the country in various forms where it takes, uh, there are some places, I'll tell you one place in particular that's very bad is California. And I know this 
because I have a few clients and and others that I know that are part of that system and it is literally so jam-packed with red tape underfunding and just just a terrible process whereby they are trying to manage absolute chaos ineffectively and that's a system that's completely broken I mean that's mass incarceration times a hundred <laughs> is a problem there um, and it doesn't help when that's really the standard we throw more and more people in a particular place into incarceration without regard for alternatives to that and they're not doing really much of anything in California uh, to look at alternatives to incarceration you know here in Wisconsin we put a, a lot of work a lot of effort a lot of studies and so forth into trying to find ways that where we don't have to keep building bigger and more prisons all over the state and we've done you know a fairly good job of that just by keeping that as a an ideal that the more prisons we build hey trust me we could increase the number of prisons by 10 times and they would get filled up it's not like you know that would help reduce crime it just creates more room for us to find places for people to be incarcerated you know and that's an overall bad thing but my point is this coming back to what business does an institution have deciding what's appropriate content or not to begin with so let's talk about that now there is this rule out there it's it's a both created by statute and case law that says an institution such as the Department of Corrections has the right to control people's access to media in certain ways um, as long as it's consistent with the mission of that particular agency and as long as it's in some way connected to either safety or appropriate conduct or whatever the case may be so as you can probably imagine there are not um, there are certain things that simply and for good reason would not be permitted in a prison like I said before like the guide to break out of prison is probably not going to be one of those or ways to be a bad prisoner you know whatever uh, and there's also as I'm sure this pops into your head as I'm talking about it there's material that wouldn't be appropriate for a prison setting um, you know let's say pornographic material things like that for for obvious reasons you know there's not a place for that right um, but this Marshall Project material that's now being censored banned banned from the prisons is it's it's too um, you know focused on problems in the justice system and part of what's been going on just so you know is that there's been I've covered this on my show previously efforts to get people who are eligible to vote under whatever version of their state law educated on the issues and and in places where people can vote in spite of the fact that they are felons or incarcerated or whatever the case may be they're entitled to receive literature and entitled to learn about candidates and that's an important process to make sure all of that stays intact that's one of the things that this organization and others 
are trying to do. Just like, you know, you get your mail every day and there's stuff in there from political candidates that say, so-and-so is bad for our society and I'm better. Or, the, you know, my opponent, you know, accepts bribes, blah, blah, blah. That's all stuff that we get in the mail. Yes, sure, people are paying for it uh, through their political you know, contributions and how they how they spend it and everything else. But, you know, nobody decides what you can or can't see or read as long as it's not something that's offensive or breaks the law in some other way. So this is a bit of a problem, you know, philosophically speaking, that we have a manner in which a government agency can say, no, we don't think people should learn know more about the actual justice system or problems in the justice system. We want to shield them from that. And I don't know what litigation might result from this because, frankly, these are nonprofit agencies that engage in this type of um, literature distribution. But anyway, it is time for a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the third segment of the show. It's always funny when uh, you know the first half of the show seems to fly by and I realize, hey, I haven't even started talking about all the things that I set aside and did research for, you know, um, for this particular week. But <clears throat> I wanted to talk more, actually, about that whole process that I was referencing before the break, uh, whereby different government agencies, usually government agencies anyway, have standards for what's um, appropriate, uh, ba basically ways in which people's rights are affected by the particular circumstance they're in. So I'm using the example of someone who's incarcerated is not going to have the same right to have access to materials, literature, whatever, that may be critical of the justice system in general, <clears throat> and that the government has the ability to say, no, you can't read that thing. Um, and it always fascinates me because if you look at the history behind efforts of some branch of the government in, in whatever form it takes limiting someone's rights. There are many, many examples over the years to the point where, you know, the free exercise of what you and I think of as our rights is, is significantly squelched in everyday life, depending upon what type of situation you're in. Oftentimes it can be as a result of your employment, it could be as a result of your status, you know, uh, if you have a criminal record or not. Uh, it could be because you're in the military or you work for a government agency or something like that, where rights that you would otherwise have that are there for every American are altered in some way. <clears throat> now, I'll use the military as an example because, as you know, um, people in the military don't have the same right of free expression uh, or right to free speech that the ordinary citizen does because the military is supposed to be apolitical, non-political entirely in, in its essence. And it, that actually is a very important point because if people um, start utilizing their military status as something to achieve political gain, it's a bad thing. Now, you may chuckle when I say that because I'm sure you're aware of many examples where that exact thing has happened, especially amongst higher-ranking, uh, you know, generals and officers that basically 
turn their position into something uh, of a political nature. We've seen it happen before, but we're talking about your run of the you know line airman, soldier, sailor, whatever, and the fact that it, you know you, they don't have the same right to free speech to criticize the government, which is really the essence of free speech, because of the the way that the chain of command works, the way that good order and discipline have to be maintained and respect for a rank, you know. So chain of command, if someone's higher than you in the chain of command, you you can't criticize them. You simply can't because the nature of the military, the nature of the mission is such that when an order is given, so long as it's a lawful order, it must be followed. And one can be not only, you know, told you have to follow it and if you don't without question you know you're going to be in trouble you can be criminally charged and discharged and incarcerated while they're at it you know it can be a pretty serious violation of the UCMJ and you think about when the cavalry arrives and the commanding officer says charge and some people say no I, I disagree with the overall political ramifications if we follow that order sir you can see why that's important, but it this goes into other areas as well. And there's a very um, significant case that happened back in the 1940s, and this had to do with government regulation and the manner in which that regulation overlaps with the free exercise of what would otherwise be intact rights. So this sounds kind of bizarre, but um, back i can't remember what part of the government was involved here department of the interior some administrative agency had oversight over the horse racing industry or you know practice of horse racing for various reasons part of it was because uh as you're probably aware there had been various scandals having to do with uh you know cruelty to animals but also doping uh, and cheating and stuff like that in the gambling world, you know, horse racing and all that stuff. So th there was, um, I believe this was a boarding uh, how and track facility that was in Pennsylvania, if I'm remembering this correctly. And anybody who worked there had to sign an agreement that the government or for that or their employer or anyone for that matter could randomly and without notice conduct a search of the living quarters because they were living at this facility as employees not of the government by the way but of a private company but because of the government involvement with the regulation of that industry and their quote-unquote right to inspect so they could come in and see or I'll, I'll, you know how are things going with this horse racing business the employer had all of the employees that were living on site signed an agreement that they would be they're waiving their fourth amendment rights and their sixth amendment rights as a matter of fact so they had in order to live there and this is contract law this is what's so weird about all this is that what we always say about contract law is that if it's in a contract you know it's enforceable more importantly, whether it's enforceable, a contract, if there truly is a meeting of the minds where somebody is agreeing to something, they can agree to waive something just like they can agree to receive something. So by virtue of the fact that people had said, okay, well, I get the benefit of living here 
at this facility um, and I'm being provided room and board and because of the involvement of this other government agency you know I'm gonna go ahead and say that's fine you can search me you can question me without a lawyer I'm just gonna waive all that stuff in writing so the question then becomes you know when this administrative agency comes in to do what they would normally be doing which is to make sure that horses aren't being abused to make sure that uh, you know the facility isn't doing anything shady to try and you know uh, adjust the the uh, odds you know in favor of one horse over another and that kind of thing that they were there legitimately regulating and they thought they'd just do some random sweeps looking for contraband other contraband any contraband while they were at it and lo and behold they found I believe it was some type of controlled substances that were being stored in one's private quarters I don't remember what it was exactly but this turned into um, an investigation and because of the fact that there had been this contracted away type thing that had to do with them living there that people were brought in for interrogation and told hey you had previously waived all these rights so you can't you know you can't say no and by the way your ongoing employment with this company is contingent upon your cooperation from here on out so you see how the landscape was set there and that case, along with several others that came out around the same time and in the following years, significantly limited that type of arrangement whereby um, one's livelihood, one's ability to work, is conditioned upon the contracting way of one's rights. And it, it, the court didn't come down and say that that in and of itself is the problem. It's the fact that when it's connected to something that makes it so it's a compelled statement it shouldn't necessarily be viewed as admissible see what i'm saying so yeah there was nothing wrong with uh, the prosecution of somebody that was in possession of something they weren't supposed to have by law it was the manner in which the evidence was gathered and th this method of getting stuff kind of in a roundabout way an indirect way by utilizing whatever the circumstances are to the advantage of the government and the disadvantage of the accused person uh, it's called a stalking horse um, scenario now I'll get to that in just a minute when we come back to the break what a true stalking horse scenario is this is a bit of a derivation from that but you can see how complicated all this gets and I'm sure when something like this is set up to begin with there's nothing insidious about it there's nothing you know like hey we're gonna use this whole structure as a way to sneak it sneak around and conduct more searches of people's property without them having the ability to object well maybe that's what they did I don't know but it usually comes up as a result of you know something else arising in the context of what these overlapping considerations and it gets awfully confusing so we'll be right back after these messages welcome back I told you we'd touch briefly on stalking horses. Um, that's a term that's used in the law to describe a situation much like a uh, Trojan horse. That's probably a term you're more familiar with. I don't know why it started taking the form of stalking horse instead of Trojan horse, but that's the way I learned it, at least, you know, in high school or middle school. 
uh, you know, the story of the Trojan horse, where it's the horse is put out in front of the enemy. They say, ooh, that's an, a neat-looking horse. Let's bring it inside our fortress. And lo and behold, they snuck in, uh, you know, soldiers that attack and annihilate the, the people at the fortress. So, also, that's where we get the term for Trojan viruses, uh, computers. It sneaks in. A way to sneak in without having to announce yourself, right? So, that term is used, and this is just another example of the overall theme of, of this, what most of the show has been about, where the government, by, usually by agreement, has put somebody in a situation where they don't have the same rights they would otherwise have. And that stalking horse scenario, that term is most often used in the context of somebody who has uh, been placed on probation, and they're being supervised by a probation agent. And the agent has the authority to conduct a search for purposes connected with with um, advice supervising one's uh, probation. So you know, like whatever. Let's say they're on an absolute sobriety provision, and the agent wants to, you know, unannounced knock on the door with someone and say, "Hey, I'd like to come inside and see. Just make sure you don't have any alcohol." Well, why is that all okay? Why is that not a violation of one's rights? Well, guess what? Probation's voluntary. <laughs> a person has to agree to be on probation. And the alternative to not, you know, to not be on, to, or the alternative to being on probation is to be sentenced harshly in court as though there's no way that someone can have a second chance. Now I'm painting this with very broad brushstrokes, but what I mean by that is that when somebody says, the judge says, hey, I'm instead of sending you to prison, I'm going to put you on probation. And there will be conditions of your probation. I'm going to order some specifically, but others will be up to your agent to determine what those are. And there are certain standard conditions of probation. So when somebody, you know, basically signs up for probation, they, they literally sign up for probation because it's volunteer, voluntary. And there's a number of rules. There are signatures that are put on paper that say, I'm agreeing to all these rules, and some of those rules are, I waive my right to you know, be free from unreasonable search and seizure because I'm allowing the probation department to come and search me anytime they wish. Why? Because this is voluntary. I'm agreeing to it, and I need to agree to it because otherwise I'd be going to prison, you see? So, a stalking horse scenario happens when, let's say, law enforcement has some reason to believe that somebody has committed a crime and there would be evidence of the crime in the person's residence. Let's just use that as an example. They also happen to know the person's on probation. And that if the probation agent were to conduct a search pursuant to the rules of probation, they wouldn't have to bother getting a search warrant or or having probable cause. I say having probable cause because usually when this happens, they don't have it. <laughs> um, it's just a hunch or something like that. And the police call it the probation agent and say, hey, uh, we'd really like to get in this house of uh, so-and-so. We know that you're uh, this guy's agent, and we could really use your help by you conducting a an unannounced 
a random search right now because that would be super helpful and we'd like to be you know be part of that if we can uh, so we'll bring the popcorn you bring the movie and when that happens and this is where the case law has really firmly come down on that practice in and of itself that version of it anyway that I've just explained to you it is in fact a violation of someone's rights now why it's because the agent is given that authority to supervise and the waiver of one's rights in writing when they volunteer to be on probation relates to uh, a waiver in connection with the legitimate purposes of probation so it's a little little hard to parse out sometimes because on the one hand an agent can search somebody's house search ask for a you know a, a drug test to be conducted anything that the person's already agreed to in connection with the reasons why somebody's on probation the legitimate goal and purposes behind supervision the problem is when law enforcement is seeking evidence of some new crime without probable cause and they just want to sneak by see that's where the stalking horse comes into play sneak by the normal requirements of getting a warrant or otherwise respecting somebody's rights it's really a trick and the, you can probably tell that the reason we have case law on this is that the government took the position that yeah it's a trick but it's perfectly legit because person's on probation it's not that they don't have any choice they basically have to do what the agent says we're just utilizing that fact to our advantage well th thankfully the rule is that it it can't be done in that clear of a violation of in that blatant of a violation of other rights that one has that have not been contracted away why haven't they been contracted away in this particular scenario I'm giving you because it was all in connection with the reasons they were being supervised so somebody has a drug problem alcohol problem domestic violence whatever and they're supposed to be engaging in treatment maintaining full-time employment uh, not committing new crimes yeah those are reasons why a probation agent might conduct a search now and then or even if they heard something or whatever but it's the coupling up the the partnering up between police and the probation department that offends the basic idea here now I also find it interesting that in that scenario it's just an example of how sometimes uh, there is this alliance that really shouldn't be there um, and I say sometimes because I work with a lot of probation agents in a lot of different scenarios and by and large they, they don't want uh, to be viewed as an arm of law enforcement to that extent I mean yes in a broad sense they're they're part of me keeping the community safe and all those other things that we want law enforcement types to do but it's a very distinct role and it's very different different from pure law enforcement um, and, and part of that is because you wouldn't want somebody um, who is gonna be conducting a search of a house and having to ask for probable cause establish from an objective standpoint to a judge why this particular situation 
calls for a warrant to be issued. You wouldn't want that person to be, you know, subjective. You wouldn't want them to have an opinion uh, based on a personal relationship with the person they're going to, you know, like, hey, I know this guy is kind of shady. I don't trust him. Uh, you know, but those are close relationships. I don't mean inappropriately close, but I mean probation agents work with their probationers. And, in other words, the people that they are supervising. And it's a good thing for them to get to know each other and to know kind of what, you know, where's this person's weaknesses? Where are their strengths? What can we do to work together to reach the common goal to successfully complete probation? That's not a law enforcement role. It simply isn't. So that's part of what, you know, is so wrong with that situation is that there's it shouldn't be this way where the cops call up the probation agent like, hey, Sandy. I got one of your guys. He's all holed up in this house. We can't get a warrant, but you can help us out. Why is there that automatic assumption that they're going to be like, sure, oh, yeah, hey, yeah, uh, I'll help you out. No no worries, no problems. Shouldn't be that way. That's an interference with that whole um, probation philosophy. So uh, now I say all that, but... Utilizing that whole line of stalking horse case law, it, what it's essentially done is enabled uh, law enforcement to adjust based on the language of, of that and other opinions to do it do the same thing but not to run afoul of the letter of the law by adjusting it in, in various different ways, such as, you know, oh, we don't want you to conduct the search. We'll go ahead and do it, but, you know, we know that you can... Uh, convince the person to open the door. We'll take it from there. That type of thing. Well, hey, friends, uh, we're out of time. I'm sorry, but you're going to have to tune in next week if you want to continue the discussion. Do that, please. Um, every Saturday morning, right here on 1330 and 101.5. WHBL, this has been Legal Defense. Have a fantastic weekend.